Chapter 2 of A Battle for Right. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kyle Nicholas. A Battle for Right by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 2 Remorse. The great steel manufacturing firm of Howard Millmarsh and Son, with its immense plant in western Pennsylvania, in its palatial offices in New York, was not any better known in business circles than was the palatial home of the head of house among the Westchester Hills. It had been the custom of Howard Millmarsh, the elder, to entertain lavishly for years, his brilliant wife being an acknowledged leader of society. Then, one night, she took cold in her limousine, riding from a ball in New York to their home, dressed only in a light ball gown, with a flimsy lace scarf over her bare shoulders. It is unnecessary to go into the details of her illness. Pneumonia is a swift disease. In ten days, she was dead, and a pal settled over the spacious and luxurious mansion. There was a large funeral, of course. That was the last large gathering of the friends and acquaintances of the Millmarshes the house saw. Her husband became a broken man, physically and mentally, he had an efficient and honest manager at the head of his vast business interests, so that there was no lack of money. But he seemed to lose all care for the world after his wife passed away. Howard Millmarsh, the younger, the personage who struck down his cheating cousin, Richard Jarvis, in the poker game at the Old Pike Inn, lived alone with his father, and was the only comfort the elder man had. But young Howard was full of life and youth. It was natural for him to desire entertainment away from the great gloomy house. Thus, it was he often spent days and nights in the gay districts of New York City, and often drank rather more than was good for him. He was not a drunkard. In fact, most persons would have said that he did not drink at all, measuring him by other young men of his social position and wealth. Nevertheless, he did give way occasionally, as he had done on this night in the inn and there was always danger that he might plunge deeper into dissipation if he were left to himself. But never again, he muttered, as he drove the high-powered car up the winding hill, while the chauffeur nodded beside him. I've played my last card, and I've taken my last drink. I wish I'd made that resolution before I went into that card room tonight. Beg your pardon, sir? interrupted the chauffeur, Drowsily, did you tell me to take the wheel? I didn't speak. Oh, didn't you, sir? I beg your pardon. But we are nearly up to the house. You can take hold now. They changed places. Then when the machine was again making its way up the road, Howard Millmarsh, who had been trying to collect his thoughts in the cool night air, and who had so far succeeded that he had managed to throw off the efforts of the liquor he had consumed directed the chauffeur to keep the car in front of the entrance, under the porte cochere, while he went inside. I'm going out again, he added briefly as the car drew up to the doorway. Howard hastened, first of all to his own room, where he found his valet, busy brushing some clothes. Fill two traveling bags with clothes, and things for a week, Simpkins, he ordered briefly. But first help me into a business suit, with a soft hat. Give me my automatic revolver and that heavy hickory stick I use for walking in the country. Very good, sir, replied the imperturbable Simpkins. In five minutes, 
Howard Milmarsh had changed his clothes with the help of the valet. In telling the latter to place the bags in the car at the door, the young man went to his father's private room, adjoining his bedroom, and knocked at the door. Why, Howard, what's the matter? demanded the millionaire as his son entered hastily, before his father could tell him to come in. You look excited. Haven't been drinking, have you? Not much. I've killed Richard Jarvis. The young man said this coolly, but it was the coolness of desperation. His wild eyes and haggard cheeks told their own story. No further confirmation of his startling confession was necessary. Howard Milmarsh, the elder, was a slender man with a pale face and hollow cheeks. He arose from the cushioned chair with difficulty, and as he moved towards his son, he swayed, as if he had not complete command of his limbs. How was it? He gasped at last. He cheated at cards. Ah, oh, that has been charged against him before. And we fought. Yes. I struck him a blow harder than I had intended. It killed him. He had a weak heart, Budworth Clark said. But, father, he called me a liar. I see. And you struck him? Yes. He had been caught with aces up his sleeve, inside his shirt cuff. That was the beginning of the trouble. Then, when he accused me of what there was actual proof of, he applied the word to me that I could not take. I killed him. Killed him, echoed the older man vacantly as he sank back into his chair. So now, father, I am going away. I cannot stay here and face a trial for murder. You would be acquitted, his father put it quickly. The provocation was one you could not pass over. Then again, his death was an accident. If his heart was weak... I know, father. We can make all the excuses we please, and perhaps they might convince a jury. But the disgrace on our name would remain. I should still feel that I had become a murderer, even though I did not mean it. So, goodbye, father. Goodbye. I will let you hear from me when I can. I do not know where I'm going, and if I did, I would not tell you, so that you would not have to say what was not true when you said to people that you did not know. The manufacturer went to a safe that stood at one side of his room and took out a package of banknotes. He handed them to his son. They're $10,000, Howard. When you need more, let me know. And now, goodbye, my son. I may never see you again. I am not well, but come back soon if you can. You will know what the result of the inquiry into the death of Dick Jarvis is if you watch the papers. I may be where I cannot easily get New York papers, Father. I intend to go as far away from what we call civilization as I can. I don't know where, but it doesn't matter. There is one thing I want to say in your presence, Father, before I go away. One vow I mean to make. Yes? I will not raise my hand in anger against anybody again. I don't care what the provocation. I will not fight. I don't see how you can make such a resolution as that, my son. Sometimes an occasion will arise when you cannot avoid fighting. I know that, but I will avoid it, even under such conditions as those, declared Howard resolutely. Don't you see, father? 
that that would be my punishment for what I did tonight to Dick Jarvis? The millionaire shook his head. It seemed to him that his son was making a vow that he would find it impossible to keep. I do not think you should hold yourself to such a pledge as that, he said. Anyhow, I believe I should be able to smooth matters over for you so that you could soon return home. I only have you now that your mother is gone, and I want you for the little time I have to live. Nonsense, father, returned Howard affectionately. You will be alive twenty years from now. Long before that, I hope I shall have found a way to come home and be a decent citizen. But I confess, I don't see my way clear now. Goodbye. With a hearty clasp of his father's hand, Howard Milmarsh turned away and fairly ran from the room. The head of the great steel firm, whom so many thousands envied for his wealth and presumably his happiness, sank back in his deep chair and let the tears trickle slowly down his worn cheeks. The widower felt as if his heart had been broken for the second time. Meanwhile, the son dashed down the wide staircase and hurried into the waiting machine. The traveling bags were already stowed away in the back of the car, and Simpkins stood at the side of it, overcoat and hat on, to go with his employer. I shan't want you, Simpkins, Howard said calmly. Tomorrow, go in and see my father. He will make arrangements with you. I shall be away for a week, perhaps much longer. I am going to New York. Drive on, Gustav, he added to his chauffeur. Take the road straight into New York and stop at the Hotel Supremacy. You know where that is. Yes, sir, replied Gustav briefly as he threw on the power. The road Gustav took did not lead past the old Pike Inn. Howard Milmarsh had remembered that when he gave the direction. He did not want to run right into the arms of the law, and he did not forget that he had seen Nick Carter watching him from the porch of the popular resort. It was not the habit of Carter to take up any ordinary murder case, even when it came immediately under his notice. But Howard Milmarsh had a feeling that the great detective would surely concern himself in this one, for he had long been a friend of Howard's father. While Howard Milmarsh skimmed along at 30 miles an hour and more, in the direction of New York. Nick was hurrying up to the Millmarsh mansion in the large gray car that he generally used for his country excursions, and which had brought him to the Old Pike Inn that evening. Mr. Carter would like to see you, sir, announced a wooden visage servant in livery to the millionaire, not more than 20 minutes after the departure of his son. He will not detain you long, he told me to say. Show him in, of course, ordered Millmarsh arousing himself and preparing to receive his caller, smilingly. Hello, Carter, was his warm greeting. I'm very glad to see you. Did you just run up from New York? No, was the grave reply. I've been at the old Pike Inn most of the evening. I came up to speak to you about your son, Howard. The millionaire jumped forward and held up a hand close to the detective's face to silence him, while an expression of agonized terror appeared on his haggard, aristocratic face. Hush. End of chapter two. Recording by Kyle Nicholas.